Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 347th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Carrie Carbonaro. Carrie is the Senior Vice President and Director of Women and Wealth Services for Advisor Capital Management, an independent RIA with offices around the country and headquartered in Ridgewood, New Jersey, that oversees more than $6 billion in assets under management for 1,700 client families. What's unique about Carrie, though, is how she navigated selling her practice to United Capital and after several years of establishing herself in a leadership role there, then had to navigate the sale of United Capital itself to Goldman Sachs and the complexities and challenges that followed as she found herself in a very different kind of culture that wasn't aligned to her media-driven approach to advisor marketing. In this episode, we talk in depth about how in 2001, Carrie left her director of marketing role at Lord Abbott selling mutual funds and in the face of the tech crash, realized that mutual fund companies were so cutting their marketing budgets that she may as well just launch her own advisory practice instead. How after years of growing successfully on her own, Carrie realized that her gift was bringing in clients and that she needed help scaling the back office and consequently decided to sell her practice and tuck into United Capital and leverage their support systems. And how Carrie then dealt with the sudden sale of United Capital Goldman Sachs that virtually overnight forced her to change the way she'd been marketing herself as an advisor for nearly 20 years because of new corporate policies of the buyer. We also talk about how Carrie tried to navigate the two-year non-compete clause in her contract and even offered to buy her practice back to undo the non-compete provisions. How Carrie ultimately reached a compromised path with a six-month non-compete and decided that was good enough to be able to make a transition and not have to totally start over. And how after that six-month non-compete period was over, Carrie was ultimately able to retain nearly 90% of her and her lead advisor's clients and decided to move her practice to a new RA where she could go back to serving her clients as she wished and continue her work in the media that she so enjoys. And be certain to listen to the end where Carrie shares how she faced a messy divorce while also navigating the 2008 financial crisis and had to move her practice to a smaller firm so she could prevent her husband from seeking retribution and give herself time. How in the early years of launching her practice, Carrie dealt with feelings of inadequacy because she felt she didn't have all the answers to her client questions. And over time, and by teaching CFP courses herself, she was able to overcome the confidence issues. And how Carrie's definition of success is evolving as her career grows from just increasing the size of the practice to now finding the freedom and time to pursue her passions around speaking and writing and appearing in the media with a focus on influence and changing the financial services industry to create better opportunities for other women to succeed in their careers. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Carrie Carbonaro. Welcome, Carrie Carbonaro, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's taken me a long time to get here. I know. I, I, well, I, as we'll get to talk about, like you've, you've had an interesting journey. I've been excited to get to share for a while, and and I'm thrilled we're finally at the point where we get to, to have the conversation and share it. Because to me, you you've lived a, a, like an interesting kind of challenge that really has just started cropping up in the industry over, I suppose the past ten years, but like really cropping up more in the, in just the past five years. You know, there's. All this merger and acquisition and sort of various roll up and aggregator 
platforms that are out there with different stories and offerings that they tell. And a lot of, you know, some advisors just use those as platforms and vehicles to sell and, and like that's their exit strategy and the acquiring firm takes over and serves their clients and does their thing. And, and the selling advisor gets the check and walks away. Others of us do those deals because like, I'm not trying to sell and leave. Basically, I want to sell and stay. I just like my firm grew to a certain size where I have to do a whole bunch of things I didn't actually really enjoy doing because like, I don't, I didn't get to see clients and grow the business as much. I had all these like people management things I didn't really want to do. So we, we, we sell or merge or acquire into a larger firm and stay because it just lets us go back to the things that we enjoy doing. And you, and you, you know, you pick a platform that you want to, you want to be a part of, but then there's this reality for a lot of the firms that are engaging in these serial transactions, which is you can really only do that if you have access to capital. Like just you need cash to buy firms from right. a private equity firm or a focus deal or whatever it is. They've all got their own structures and arrangements. But for many of them, particularly in the context of private equity, like they're investors. And at some point they want out. Which means there's this downstream effect of like what happens when the firm you sold to gets sold, particularly because exactly. you often have more choice in who you sell to than who they sell to. And and I know you've you've lived that journey at both stages, what it's like to sell your firm into one of those platforms, and then what it's like when that platform sells. And so I'm just I'm I'm looking forward to having the discussion of what it's like when you navigate really both layers of that path, like the the dynamic when you decide to sell and then the dynamic when they <laughs> decide to sell uh, and and you're you're now along for the next stage of the journey. Yes, or not, but or, or not if you don't want to continue the, and have that choice, right. which also becomes part of the challenge into itself. Exactly. part of the story. So I'd say so to get us started, um, yes. Why don't you take us back to just early days of your advisory career and kind of the the path that you carved in originally building your own firm before sure. eventually you got to this world where other transactions and things start happening? Sure. So I started, um, as they say, one client at a time. You know, really, really back in the day, I had just um, I had just left. I was head of uh, marketing at Lord Abbott Mutual Funds in Manhattan, and I had relocated to Florida, and it was right after 9-11, and you know, the world was kind of very different back then, and the market was down, and it was a ter you know, terrible time for investments and terrible time to be an advisor, and that's when I decided to start my own practice. I originally thought I was going to you know, get a job back in marketing of mutual funds or within the financial service space. But because I was relocated to Florida um, and, and it was the start of a, of a big recession after 9-11, it was a terrible time to get a job. And first I oh, cut yeah. myself. Mutual fund that? was getting slaughtered at this point. Like every, oh, every, everybody's awful. down, the tech bubbles burst and, exactly. and markets are in a multi-year decline. Like it's, it's interesting exactly. to me, you know, the the coronavirus pandemic, like the markets, like the whole darn bear market was done in a in a in a couple of months. Right. Uh, the financial crisis is so on pretty fast. Like, you know, we 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 peaked in early two thousand eight, but almost all the pain was basically like 
September 08 to March of 09. Exactly. And so it's interesting for anybody who was around back in the in the early 2000s, like the peak was April 2000 and the trough was the end of 2002. Like it took two and a half years where the market kept grinding lower. It was a long, it was a long one. It really was. And it's so interesting because I, I originally went out and I said, oh, I'm going to cut my salary in half. And then I said, I'm going to quarter my salary. And then I said, I'm not getting out of bed for quartering my salary. I'm going to dust <laughs> I'm going to dust my CFP off the shelf and I'm going to start taking clients. And that's what I did. In the middle of nowhere, I was in Central Florida. I had, you know, I'm I'm a born and raised New Yorker and here I was in so what, Florida. What how did you <laughs> land in Florida as a born and raised New Yorker? So, unfortunately, I married Mr. Wrong. And he relocated me to Central Florida. Okay. <laughs> and that's another big long story. But um, you know, I was in a terrible, terrible, terrible marriage. And while I was actually starting my practice. So the whole time I, I was in, you know, a terrible marriage in the middle of nowhere, which actually I, I love Central Florida now, but back then it really was the middle of nowhere. Now it's not. Um, but it was back then. And and I figured I'm just gonna start taking clients one at a time, you know, and it was so difficult in the beginning. And I, I used to say to people, if I knew how difficult it was in the beginning, I would not have done it. And people are like, how can you say that now? And I said, I still say that now. If I knew how difficult it was to start from scratch with no help by myself as a fee only advisor, I would not have done it. And, you know, I think the first year I made $2,400. The second year I made 14,400. Like the third year I made like 36. The fourth year I made like 78. And it took me to the fifth year before I broke um, six figures. Crazy, right? Yeah, it's painful. That's painful. Incredibly painful. I actually had a lot of money though um, put aside like because I had made so much money in my early years. Um, and so I had all that money like bankrolling myself during that time frame. Be- yeah. Because you, because you were making good dollars in marketing mutual funds in the late 1990s. Cause again, yeah, like so, that, so, er- yeah, early I, on that was like the positive heyday. Like it was ugly in the tech crash, but it's really nice in the late oh, 1990s. Yes. Well, so I, I made uh, by at age 30, I was making half a million dollars a year. Wow. And I said, and uh, obviously, 20, I, I have 25 right, years ago, long time ago. And I said, oh, I, well, I have to just obviously get back to that. So that's always been my goal. Get back to what I made, you know, and obviously it took me four years, five years just to break a hundred on doing the only financial planning advisor, you know, and also I was by myself. Um, you know, I had, you know, one employee and then I had my horrible ex-husband doing, helping me with some stuff. And, but yet I still started to grow and I was growing and growing and growing. I wound up deciding to, uh, go get divorced. And finally, in, um, it was like 2007 when the divorce started. And then as you know, what happened in 2008 and 2009, which was, you know, a total nightmare. So here I am going through a divorce and I'm going through the financial crisis at the same time. So I, so the divorce started in 07 and didn't finish till the end of 2011. That's how many years it took 
and we had no wow. kids and it was and i spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and it was a total nightmare and he was doing everything he could to break me during this time frame which is another reason why i went through a lot of difficult things for example he hired an sec attorney to contact all of my clients in 2008 early 2009 and said, we're doing a class action lawsuit against Carrie. Did you lose any money during the financial crisis? Wow. Like that's, that's like pretty out there direct, like literally trying to destroy you in the business. Yes. Well, that's, that's just, that was just a little simple, tiny thing of what happened. Yeah. That, that was like, that was like a Tuesday, you know, I mean, so it was pretty much every single day was something like that, but that one was pretty extreme. And then of course we, you know, called him out on it, got the attorneys involved, you know, all the usual stuff. But anyway, I finally, um, I knew that I needed to, my head firm had gotten large enough that I, I didn't want to do a lot of the things that I didn't want to do. And I needed, you know, I, I got big well, enough that I needed SEC registration, large, you know, size wise. And I, say, I said, what, what was the size of the firm at this point? Like what I did think it, it I think to? it was uh, maybe a hundred million. Okay. And so I, whatever it was, it was the, the SEC rule breakdown. And I said, okay, so let's, let's go. I got to find a firm to go to. And, um, in the meantime, while I was going through my divorce, I had, I went to this other small firm because the attorneys advised me, you know, don't keep the old firm that your ex-husband has access to. So I went to a small firm in the interim and then I knew I was going to leave as soon as I got through the divorce. So I was then looking for firms during that time frame for, I guess it was at least two years, um, looking at all firms to merge with and to take over the back office stuff for me. It's interesting because a lot of advisors need help with getting clients and front office stuff. And I need help with everything else. I don't need any help getting clients. I need, I don't need any help with putting myself out there or marketing or sales or, um, speaking, writing, consulting, TV, media, none of that. Like that's my specialty. I need help with every single thing else. And I was down the road with a firm out of California, very, very, very far down the road. And I got a call from a recruiter who wanted to talk to me about United Capital. And I was like, well, I'm so far down the road with this other firm. I I, I don't think so, but sure, let's, I'll keep my options open. And, you know, Matt Brinker, who came to my, came to me in, in New York and somebody else who has long been gone from United and they were like, you're perfect for us. You know, you're, you're doing everything that we want our advisors to do, you know, cause I always sold advice and then first and did financial planning first and got paid for everything that I did. Cause I never wanted to work for free. And then I would also get AUM money, but I've done it that way my whole entire career. So it, I didn't think it was anything, there was anything unique about it, but people said that, I guess that was unique back in the, back then people were not charging for financial plans. They were giving the financial plans away for free, trying to get the AUM. And I was like, I'm not working for free. So I always did it that way. And they, and, and I always did behavioral finance and I always, you know, because as a female financial planner, I think we're very good at listening and empathizing and, you know, really sitting on the same side of the table as our clients. Um, Not that guys can't do it either. It's just, 
women are natural at it. It's easy. It's easier for us. And so anyway, I had great, great relationships. I'm, I'm an excellent like relationship builder with my clients because I truly love them and care about them. And I always tell them no one's going to care for you more than I am because it's the truth. Um, Because I care for their money like as if it's my money. And I care for them as if they're my family members. That's just, that's just how I work. So then the United Capital came in and they really were fantastic. And, you know, back then, you know, they would fly out to the Newport Beach offices and you'd meet the executive team and, you know, Joe was fantastic and everybody was so great. And I was like, wow, this is really great. And all the other advisors, I I liked, I really liked the other advisors. I felt a lot of camaraderie with the other, you know, managing directors. And I felt like, okay, this is going to be for me, it's going to be, you know, one plus one equals 11 because I'm going to be able to leverage myself and my time and do what I like to do best. And, and I decided to go with United Capital and I, and it was a really, really good, really, really, really good deal for me and a good experience. And I really loved almost every single thing about the process and the experience. So help me understand, uh, just what was it that made it so appealing to choose them over the others? I mean, I know the the landscape's a little different now, and and they're literally not in the uh, the 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 business of doing these acquisitions anymore. But I'm I'm always fascinated to to hear like you know, firms that do these platforms have so many different things that they offer. Sort of the point, like we can do whatever it is you need to support your back office. Like right. what? So what was it that made them the choice and not others that you were talking to? Like what was the what was actually the differentiating factors for, for, me, for you? For me, Joe was a big deal. You know, um he was, you know, his vision and him as a leader was really um compelling. Um I loved the executive team. Um I think that they had they had a, an entire dedicated marketing team, which was also really important to me because I need a lot of marketing support, and they were going to be there for me for that. Um, also, I really liked their tools and technology because a lot of their stuff was you know homegrown, as you know, and also because well, this is before we were licensing it out to other advisors, but it was good enough to license to other advisors. Okay. And so, so it sounds like, I mean, it really is sort of this combination, like, yes, they had the technology. Yes, they had the staff and you just flat out liked the leadership and their messaging. You know, I really, I really felt like I was going to be able to leverage myself there and I was going, and I believed in the mission of, you know, changing the world through financial planning and that we were going to really offer a better and superior product to, you know, the market and the clients, you know, with an average client size of, you know, between one and five million. And that was their sweet spot. And that was my sweet spot. So it was, I was very aligned. So, so how did the deal work? I mean, I'm sure... Not, none of the deals now get cut the way that they did then. It was a different different world ten plus years ago. But uh, like, how did the deal actually work? So what they what they were doing during my time frame was you were selling fifty percent of your cash flow, and for fifty percent of your cash flow, you were getting um, 
either most people took a third, a third, and a third of a third of equity, a third of stock, and a third of cash. Um, but you could do any combination of whatever you wanted to do from that. Wait, wait, what? If they're trading equity in kind, like what's the difference between a third of equity and a third of stock? Isn't the stock equity? Oh no, sorry, equity? sorry, a thir- sorry, it wasn't. No, no, no. It was a third, of, a third of equity, a third of notes, and a third oh, of no. cash. Okay. No, okay. note was the middle one. Okay, and and so um, so you'd sell so you'd sell fifty percent of your cash flow, and then keep the other fifty percent. So you get like. Yes. Revenue-based compensation for the other fifty yes. percent of your practice, basically. Yes. Because you'd sell the whole entity, right? Like it's not like you kept your business entity where you owned half and they owned half. It's really funny because that was always super murky. I mean, super murky because most of the advisors thought we still own fifty percent of our business, and you know when obviously when the next transaction happened. We all found out we own zero percent right. of our business. You own a financial promise to continue to receive fifty percent of your cash flow unless a future buyer changes those terms. So nominally, like you would, you'd sell half your cash flow. You'd continue to get revenue-based compensation for the other half of your book, and then of the portion that got monetized. Uh, a third of it was upfront cash. A third of it was a note that was financed over time. And then a third of it, you would roll into United Capital equity. So you're doing like an equity right. for equity swap. Right. Correct. And, and and that was pretty much the general what most people did. I mean, again, some people took less stock. Some people took more stock. It totally right. depended on what you, what you wanted. Right, right, right. So – and and were you one of the people that did a a version of this split? So like you, yeah, you yeah. had some of your cash flow, you had a bit of United Capital yeah. stock, uh, and then you got some partial liquidity event at the time, right? And the note the note was was over five years. Okay, and and so uh, as you did this transaction, so again, I'm trying to keep it in context, like. The whole point here was you're only selling half your cash flow because, like, you didn't want to leave. This wasn't an exit for you. This was a no my way. Firm I is was growing successfully, right. and right. now I have to hire people I don't want to hire so that I can manage people I don't want to manage. Right. Uh, right. This was, United was, Capital thing where they young. have staff and infrastructure sounds great. Right. No, I was I was young, and also you know they wanted people like me because I was not going to sell and sit there. I was going to sell and grow. Right, right, and that's right. what I did. Which means they get more. You know, they yeah. they actually benefit more on that than I did. But that's okay. I was growing anyway. Yep, I mean, the pie's expanding. Everybody's doing well. Right, exactly. So, so that was so that was the deal uh, uh, going in. And I guess help us. Like, so, what was the vision that Joe Duran was explaining? At the time, like you went in in part for this vision, Joe was compelling. His vision was compelling. So, I know this is like a, a little ways back. But what, like, what was the vision then? What was the story that you were you were buying into? Was you know we are going to be better than anybody else on the street. That nobody else can deliver financial planning services to you know the market of one million to ten million better than we can. You know nobody's going to get 
in, um, in, you know, have the sticky relationships with the clients that we are going to have. We're going to have the tools and technology to support it. We're going to have, you know, the highest net promoter scores. We're going to, you know, really do everything counter the industry, the existing industry, like the Goldman's of the world. So we're, we're, we're going to be better than everybody else because we're going to understand our, our customers. We understand consumers. We understand the marketplace. We understand what drives people, what's the psychology, the behavioral uh, psychology behind why somebody's going to do business with you. And we're going to, we're going to do it the best way possible. So make it a win, win, win really. And that's where we were going. We were doing it. I think we were changing. I thought we were changing the industry. I mean, everything we came out with was fantastic and clients loved it. And, you know, we were really moving the needle. I, I really thought we were. And and plus for me, you know, being um, head of women in wealth or, you know, head of women's leadership, which by the way, I actually had to petition to Joe to be able to do that and, you know, come up with a business case of why it's so important to you know, not ignore this segment and the fact that, you know, by the year 2030, women are going to control two thirds of the nation's wealth and somebody better get this right. And whoever does mm-hmm. is going to make a ton of money. Um, that's how I got, you know, that's how I got to be able to run um, women's leadership for United Capital. And I was really, really moving the needle there. So, so what did that, what did that look like in practice? Just when you, when you say like, running women's leadership and building the business case for it, what were you doing in practice? So we were doing, um, we were having our annual um, meetings of, of women who, who got all the women from the firm that got invited to it and additional men who wanted to come. And it was completely supported. And we did a whole thing of how can we make the industry more female friendly? How can we make our collateral and, and messaging more female friendly? What products can we bring in that are more female friendly? How can we, um, you know, break down barriers in the industry that are created by men for men so that people don't even realize that it's alienating to women. And I don't know if you know this, but you you might or you might not, but there was a, a study done, a Harvard Business Review study and also a McKinsey study showing that financial service is literally the worst um, to women. It's it's listed as the the number one worst industry to women uh, because they don't understand they're not they're 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 not getting them they're not listening to them they're you know and it has the most opportunity if they get it right if they actually pivot and make it female friendly. So the the worst not in terms of the worst for women to work in but literally like the worst in delivering services and solutions to women. Yeah. So so were there particular things that you change like that you guys actually impl- like implemented and altered based on the the conversations like how to, how did this show up in practice for Yeah so we we well first first of all we a lot of our process was more female friendly than any other firm because we went into the behavioral finance and we went into the psychology of why people do what they do why they um you know their unconscious response to money of how they how they react to money, um, 
how they make their decisions related to money. And so we, so we tried to get into the, the, you know, the quiz and the, and the psychology of why people do what they do. So that was number one, which is incredibly female friendly and, um, really put people, um, at ease and, you know, and then we went into, uh, what we called the honest conversations, which was kind of like a little, you know, goals clarification game. And I actually always did it anyway with my clients. I just didn't necessarily have the cards, but for most advisors and I would say most male advisors, you know, it's not something that they normally are very comfortable asking these types of questions. And we were doing it as part of our daily meetings. And not only that, we would never, ever exclude one of the partners. Like it had to be joint because most what happens is in a, in a lot of settings is if the woman is disengaged, um, the advisor just keeps talking to the male. And, you know, I had a woman once, which is ironic because, you know, here I am talking about, you know, always keeping the women engaged. I had a woman stop in the middle of the meeting, pull out my a magazine and start reading the magazine in the middle of the meeting. And <laughs> so I guess that's not going well. <laughs> you, no, no, no. Well, no, because she was she didn't care. And she was she the, the husband was asking questions and I literally stopped the meeting took the magazine away from her and said, I, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I know that you're not interested in this, but I really, really want you to be paying attention. And I want to, you know, make eye contact with you. And I want you to be understanding what your husband's asking. So how did that, how did that go in the moment? It went fine. It went fine. I mean, I think she appreciated it, but she was like, you know, I'm not interested in this stuff. And I said, okay, but what if something happens to your husband? I want you to, I want you to be interested. I want you to at least know I want you to have a, a, you know, a basic understanding and I want you to be part of the conversation. I don't want you to be not here and not engaged and just sitting here, you know, reading a magazine. I mean, it's funny because a lot of women do zone out, but you don't really know. But in this case, I really knew because I saw her pick up the magazine. I mean, that had never happened to me before. So that was pretty wild because I'm, I'm usually very engaging with the, with the female. So that was surprising. But anyway, what else did we do? Um, we were trying to do, um, female, uh, friendly segments, um, like webinars and, and, and put out content. And we were, we were about, we were, you know, wanting to, to add a, a female, a women in wealth, section of the website um, and and putting all kind, tons of resources around that. Um, we were doing women events all the time, women only events, which were really great because women, um, when there's multiple, when there's male and female in the audience, you're not going to get the same experience as when it's all female. And we're talking about money. They're going to ask totally different questions when the when the when the guys are in the office when in the in the room. They're not going to ask the same questions. It's a totally different dynamic. And you know, we were doing events like women in wine and women in wealth and women in um, uh, spa days and like just everything that women like. Women in fashion, women in jewelry and wealth. So like pairing it with stuff that they like to kind of like a, like a carrot, like, okay, we're going to talk about what you like and then we're going to talk about money. So, so what's going on with your practice at this point? Like just as you're, as you're chugging along with United Capital. 
Yeah. So at that point, I, I I had you know I was I was very very happy and successful at United. I actually at at this point, um, I think I I probably had four roles actually at United. You know, before it ended, and I had I did twenty five percent of my time I was running women's leadership. Um, 25% of my time, I was like the voice of the woman, whereas I was, um, doing speaking, writing, social media, TV, and also speaking at all the female events, you know, around the country, getting, um, female clients for other offices. Um, my third role was my day job, which was taking care of my clients, um, of which I was a diamond practice, which is the highest level you can get based on, you know, KPIs and profitability and all those other things. And so I had a very successful practice. And then fourth thing, I was also a FinLife coach where when we were licensing our tools and technology to outside advisors, they wanted somebody who was inside, who was well-known in the firm to be at these events, you know, talking to the advisors and, and, you know, helping them on the coaching side. So I was doing that as well. So I had four different roles and I loved every minute of it and it was really great um, until it wasn't. So I want to come to the until it wasn't part soon, but um I want to understand a little bit more just the the different roles. You said both you had a practice. I did. But then you're also doing like speaking, writing, TV events around the country to help those advisors get get clients, get get connect with women into their practices. So so I guess like you you had both clients you would bring in for you and then clients that you were bringing in for the firm that would go to others that that was like that was part yes. of the structure. Yes. And so for me, I, I had, I had been at max capacity for a while. Um, so, you know, for me, it was bring on more clients and then you have to bring on more staff or just stay status quo and only take on clients that you want and then maybe give some clients away. Cause I, you know, I feel like for me, I've always felt like 150 is like a max number that, somebody should be able to take care of. Really, I, I always used to say it was 100, but then I upped it to like 125 and then I upped it to 150. And I'm like, this is like, that's the max. If you're really taking care of your clients, I don't think you can do more than that. And so I was constantly giving clients, my my clients away to my number two. And then 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 I was just like, we just, we really have to be very selective of who we're taking on at this point. And it was much easier for me to get clients for other people. And and so did you have some kind of like business developer compensation arrangement or so, so was that I, not I a was, big deal? You're just happy to make it bigger overall. Well, you know, it's funny. Originally, I didn't because I'm such a team player. And then other people were like, especially my husband was like, you need some sort of compensation. And I'm like, okay, I'll ask, you know, and then then they were paying me per speech. And then we were eventually going to get to a business development where I was going to get overrides on clients, but we actually never got there. Because, but I did get paid for my for for doing the speeches. Um, but I never got, I never did get a, a an override. And 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 so I'm sorry. And what, so where was your client capacity max where you just weren't taking on any more yourself? You mean what's the number? Yeah, like how many clients well, was the no, no mas can't take so, anymore? 
Well, so for it's so it's me and my number two, and we're we were at 150, and that was that was enough for the two of you. And you, yeah, your number two was like an associate advisor can actually do client facing stuff. He can, and he's a CFP okay. as well. Okay. Okay. So I'm. 775 per person, 150 between the two of you. Although I'm so what did you actually have like your clients and his clients or we did. It, okay. And so how how are you how do you carve up between the two of you? Well, usually I would just take the higher end clients. Okay. And then and then sometimes we would both be be on the calls, depending on who the client was. Okay. You know, and then I would do the handoff and um all my clients are know that I'm still there and we're sort of a team. So because he's been with me a very long time, he's been with me like 15 years. Okay. Okay. So te- team based nominally with one person as the lead, but even between the two of you, it gets crowded and you didn't, I guess just, and you didn't want to make a third person. No, you know why? The reason I couldn't do a third person, it's kind of interesting. It's it's back to related to uh, <laughs> the sale, I guess. Um, but so, you know, United had a whole thing with revenue per employee. And, you know, I had I had the best metrics actually in the firm because of my revenue per employee. Um, and they would not big on adding staff because they were going to go out and look for a recapitalization. And so there was a lot of, you can't hire. Oh, okay. Because they, because they want to show our technology is driving all of this productivity. Look how good our revenue per employee metrics are, which is sort of a, a good benchmark measure of, of productivity. Except if you then go bulk up hires, like, you know, if you're going to hire and then grow enough to make the numbers still good, that's fine. But please don't hire right before we do a recap, or you're just going to mess with our numbers. Right. So, and and for a long time, I mean, I kept saying we're at max capacity. I I, I can't even tell you how long, how many times I said that for how many years, and they were like, okay. So I so then I was getting clients for other people. Interesting. And so that's part of what it meant to be a. Uh, a diamond level practice internally that was a, a a practice that had top tier revenue per employee metrics. That was one of that was one of the seven KPIs. Yeah, and the other ones, you know, were um, net promoter scores and um, how sales growth and revenue growth and you know retention. And I'm probably leaving one or two out. I can't remember. Okay. And so like every advisor, that's interesting. So every, every advisor would basically have like a scorecard of yes. here's the seven KPIs that matter for your practice as, as you know, as we score them around here. Uh, and, and then you get, you get like ranked, you get tiers based on whether you hit certain thresholds across the KPIs. Well, and it, I mean, it wasn't necessarily, I guess it was sort of tears, but yeah. And, you know, they had just came out with this in 2018 and 2019 was the first year that they, that they came out with it. And it was 2019. It was when they, when we got the diamond level awards um, and, you know, you know what else happened in 2019. So was this, like, did this impact your 
compensation or your did. bonuses or it was this did. simply it like did. a recognition? No, no, program? no, no, no. This was, this was the only, the, you know, it's funny cause I had gotten, I had received a bunch of awards over the years. I got, um, most valuable player MVP managing director. And I've got a bunch of like other awards. None of them impacted my bottom line. The diamond award was the only one that affected my bottom line. You got a 20% pay bump. It's real money. But like 20% of whatever your your salary, your comp is yeah. if you're at a diamond yeah. tier. Yeah. And, I, and I'm assuming there, like, there were other tiers that were not as cool as I don't no. know. Gold, no, there silver. Was, no, there was no other tier. Oh, diamond or bust. That's it. Okay. Interesting. Interesting structure. Uh, all obviously just trying to you know, set the bar for here's what actually drives the firm forward and getting everybody aligned around what what a what a good what a quote unquote good healthy advisor team means in the context of their business. Exactly. So I mean I I I had felt very, very, very good entering 2019. Like I was firing on all cylinders. I mean the fact that I won Diamond, I was like ecstatic. And then, you know, I was doing all these other great things that I loved doing. So it was really fantastic. I mean, everything uh, my life was perfe- perfection in 2019. So, oh, also that's the year that I got number four on the Investopedia list. <laughs> yes. So then, what happened? So what happens next? Like the, I mean, I know in the unofficial or like the the external timeline, mid 2019, the news breaks: United Capital is being sold. Ah. Uh, and and not just you know kind of it had some private equity investors and it's going to other private equity investors. United Capital is getting sold in full to Goldman Sachs. Yes. So we knew about it maybe a, three weeks before it came out, and I remember I was actually at an Invest in Women conference and I was speaking at it, and then they were like, "Oh, we're having an emergency phone call," and. We, I got on the emergency phone call. I was there with another advisor, a friend of mine, and we both got on the on the emergency phone call. And they and they told us that Goldman Sachs is is potentially buying us, and it was like a five minute conversation. And you know, they said we're going to send out a survey, and you you know, you get to pick between whoever who our offers are, and. But meanwhile, the deal was already done at that point. Like they had already decided that it was Goldman. And for like five seconds, I was like, wow, that's amazing. And that is super prestigious. And I can't believe I'm going to be working for Goldman Sachs. And like for like, it's for literally like five minutes, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then five minutes later, I was like, wait a minute. I don't really know what this means. And if I wanted to work for Goldman Sachs, I would have worked for Goldman Sachs. And then it just went sort of a downhill spiral from there, at least at least for me. And so it the deal got done super fast. We had no idea when it was going to be announced. We were not allowed to say anything to our clients. We were not allowed to say anything to anyone. So I am on vacation in Japan when the deal gets announced. And I have my phone ringing off the hook at four in the morning, at three in the morning, at two in the morning, 
it was an absolute disaster. We, it was the, so bad who's, for who's me. Who's calling your clients, clients or calling or like other advisors? Clients. No, clients, clients. Not happy. Okay. Not happy clients. So and, why, are, why are clients not happy? Because uh, clients are like, you know, if I wanted to go to a, a big bank brokerage firm like them, I would have been with, I would have already done that. I am with you because you're not that. Okay. So the whole, like you were marketing, like you were marketing United Capital as we're an RA, we're independent, we're like an anti-Wall Street thing. Exactly. And that's what clients had often bought into from a messaging perspective. Right. Well, I think clients really, I mean, clients buy into you. I mean, clients buy into me. Um, Right, right, right. You know, and I remember what my biggest client said to me, you know, uh, I'm bearish on Goldman, but I'm bullish on carry. And I said, okay. And I said, well, I don't, and you know, and everyone's asking us all these questions that we can't answer. Like, are you going to sell our investments? Are we going to have access to Goldman investments? Are you going to force us to be on Goldman's platform? I, I have no answers. I, I, we, we literally knew nothing at this time, you know, and we were just trying to get through to the other side. Again, not even knowing what's on the other side. And so I'm trying to be positive. I, I mean, obviously it's happening. It's happening to me and it's happening to them no matter what. Like there's nothing we can do. We can't, we can't quit. We can't get out. We can't move. Like it's, this is happening. Like, and so the deal happened so fast from the time it, clo- from the time it was announced to the time it closed, wasn't even two weeks. I mean, we couldn't even get our, we couldn't even get our fingerprints done in that time frame. That's how fast it happened. It was just crazy. Like nothing, nobody could believe what was happening so fast. I actually cut my trip short from, from, Japan, from Japan. I left Tokyo. I never got to Kyoto. And we came home so I could deal with this disaster before me. And so literally day one of uh, the, the announcement, uh, you know, it's, it, we have a little, a little banner on social media that says, Goldman Sachs acquires United Capital and everybody's posting it. I go to post it on social media like everybody else. I get an immediate phone call within five minutes from compliance at, at um, Goldman Sachs to take it down that I'm, I'm not allowed to post that. Everybody else can post it, but I can't. And I was like, what is happening here? And then I got all these messages from my old team saying, you know, unfortunately, Carrie, you are not, you're not going to be allowed to speak. You're not going to be allowed to write. You're not going to be allowed to go on TV. You're not going to be able to be, go on be, social media. You're not going to be- now you're part of Goldman Sachs and, you know, Gold, Goldman speaks as Goldman wishes to speak. You are not a- official media spokesperson for Goldman. That, that is correct. That is correct. So I I had I had I already had TV lined up. And I remember I remember the day of the of the of the announcement I was flying to go on TV and I said, "Oh my god, I'm I could get fired for going on this show." And I wound up going on the show and they said United Capital not Goldman, but whatever. Mm-hmm. But I I literally thought I could get fired. I could literally get fired. And so then- And this is like a hard turn from you've spent the past seven or eight years like 
fully embracing media as your marketing strategy because that that's your thing. Yes. And now all all of a sudden that is substantively changed. We had a TV segment on WPIX. I was the financial fix segment that was a regular. I was on about 15 regular shows where I was on all the time. Mm-hmm. I had columns. I had, you know, I had my book. I had, um, I was in the middle of a second book. I, you know, I use social media pretty much every single day, multiple times a day because I, I enjoy the platform and I enjoy the whole point of social media being social and having my opinion and sharing it and, you know, being with my colleagues. Um, and it's how I got clients. It's how I, it's how I got speaking engagements. It's how I win awards. It's how, it's what I'm good at. It's what I believe in. It's getting my voice out. It's getting, it's being heard. It's, it's having an opinion. It's, it's, you know, I have very strong beliefs and I, you know, say it all the time. I, I always say what I, what I feel and to literally have my voice taken away from me and having my arms and legs cut off and a gag put around my mouth, I could not breathe. I literally could not even get out of bed in the morning because I did not know what to do. And I guess even relative to other advisors that that deal with just, I, I mean, transitions when when merges and acquisitions happen, like feels like this is this sort of is uniquely challenging for you in your role because you were the you were the very media centric external advisor like you were the you were the one that was doing this the most in the domain that Goldman is the most buckled down. Right. And and it's so interesting cuz I I had a bunch of people within United Capital say to me, you know, you're getting hurt the most. And I said, I'm well aware of that. But like at least everybody acknowledged it. And like a lot of people said, you know, I'm really sorry what they're doing to you, Carrie. And I'm really sorry that this is happening. And I'm really sorry, you know, you should not be here. And I'm, you know, and I actually believed for one second, I really said to myself, you know what? I am a a female advocate. I'm I'm a voice in the industry. I'm a voice for women. Why? They have a terrible reputation with women. Why wouldn't they use me? I could be, we could make this a win-win-win, except that I never even got the chance. They shut me down so fast that I didn't, I didn't even know what was happening. My head was spinning so fast. Mm. I just, and they, they literally told me, sit down, shut up and babysit your clients. And I was like, what is happening? I do not know what is happening right now. And, you know, I think also because they're so used to incredibly small boxes and incredibly tight reins, mm-hmm. yet they purchased United Capital. United Capital was not tight reins, was not small, was not in right. a box. You know, they somebody like myself who got to do, you know, who they never said no to, you know, and then I got to Goldman and you know, they said no to me 150 times. So it's not like I didn't, I actually kept asking. And it it was really funny because at one point I said to one of my friends who used to be on the United Capital side, who's now long gone from Goldman, I said to her, should I keep asking? 
And she said, no. The answer is always going to be no. You're never getting a yes. If the firm is just too big, you're never going to you're never going to get up the priority list enough to get the sign off from the people two, three, four levels above you that you would need to get to make a different policy. Well, so one, I'll give you one example of something because I don't know if, I think you know, I'm a CFP board ambassador, which I've been for like, I think about eight years and super honored to be appointed by the CFP board and to represent the press, to represent the the profession in the media, obviously, because that's what I'm good at. And so- I, they came to me and said, you haven't done anything, you know, in like two years, because I'm at Goldman. And I said, okay, I said, you know what, do me a favor, give me six months. I said, and, and I will, I'll get you something. And so they said, okay, write a blog on the five mistakes that women make about money. And I said, okay, great. Wrote it up, sent it out, gave myself six months to get this approved. It was the most humiliating experience of my life because there was probably a hundred people involved and almost every single person said, who is Carrie Carbonaro and why am I looking at this? Mm-hmm. And then I got, you know, uh, a million reasons why I shouldn't be doing this. And then I got, this is a waste of my time. Um, yep. And then, and then the, my final, my final is my favorite. I got I got back from one of the people in marketing. Um, the executive office is uncomfortable with this blog post. It is filled with sexist tropes and has no value. <laughs> you literally cannot make that up. It is so unbelievable. And and I and I cried my eyes out. And I said, I mean, I'm not a crier. I never cry. And I cried. And I said, you know what? I think they think I'm a man. I think they think I'm a male because my name is Carrie, C-A-R-Y. It's like a, it's like a male version of so, – so because how could anything that came from my mouth be sexist when I'm a female advocate and I'm a woman? But maybe they think I'm a man and that's how I rationalized it in my head that they, you know, they killed it because they thought I was a man. So, so help me understand, uh, like, did you have a – like, did you even get a choice of going along with the deal? Like, was there a was there ever a chance to say I I don't want to go along with the United Capital deal to to Goldman or no no it remember so it was announced mm-hmm. and then we ha- we had less than two weeks where we had to get fingerprinted you know do the do the 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 paperwork to become an employee. And there was no, we didn't even have time to get um, the contracts reviewed. You know, we we were waiting for these contracts, waiting for these contracts. We we got the contracts the night before, or it was either the night before or the two nights before we were becoming employees. And so I didn't even have time to get it reviewed by um, reviewed by an attorney. It was it was like you know talk about under being under duress like it was sign yeah. it or else or else you didn't and i was like what's the or else and they're like well either you don't have a job or you're not getting paid either we don't know i mean there was there was no there was no in between and right. so then i had to deal of course on the other side with the aftermath of the contract which is another long story yeah so because then that was giving my next question like if you if you couldn't step off the train, like you know, as the deal was closing, like 
did you still have a, you know, are there options to get off afterwards? Like just when all this terribly frustrating stuff is happening, is there a point where you can just say, okay, I just, I don't want to be here anymore. This is not fun anymore to put it mildly. Um, I, I think I want out and I'm, I'm just going to go do my own thing. Right. So, so unfortunately the, the, they, they gave us stock options and um, in the stock options, they wrapped um, a two-year non-compete in there, um, which was what I had at United, but I never even looked at my contract at United because I wasn't leaving. And, and right. it probably had expired at that point anyway because I was there so long. So I, I don't even know if I had a contract at, anymore at United. But so that, so they wrapped the stock options into the contract with a lot of other incredibly strict legalese language, as you can imagine, since they have all the money in the world and all the attorneys in the world. Right. Um, and so their whole thing was, we are going to lock the advisors up so they can't leave. Unless you and, take a full-on two-year non-compete sitting. Correct. And two years is a long time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many people can do yeah. a two-year non-compete. I mean, it's it's onerous. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and I, I didn't think I could do it. And I guess even in the context of enforceability of non-competes, which gets tough in some places, just I'm envisioning the legal arguments, like when they actually have stock options tied to it, like they can say, we're not just imposing this as a a, a unilateral condition of employment. Like, look, look, we gave stock options. Like this was in exchange for compensation. Right. Well, because technically I was an owner at the old firm. Okay. And I, so that so makes you, it even worse. So you, right. So it's, it's one thing to have non-competes in employment contracts, but there, there really is more legal precedent of like, if you sell, you know, if you own a business and you sell the business, Correct. It is not uncommon for buyers to put non-competes, right? Just they don't they don't want to acquire the business from you and then have you open up shop across the street and take back the business that they just paid you for. So exactly. there's some some I think actual reasonable principles in allowing non-competes in in acquisition scenarios. I guess it's a po good point since the original United Capital deal had you know fifty percent cash flow, fifty percent. Uh, sold and of that it was a third a third a third of cash note and equity like a sixth of your practice had turned into united capital equity so you had a material stake of united capital equity that was part of this uh deal wrap up right well and that's another sort of story but yeah you know because we thought we were going to get goldman stock and we didn't they just cashed us out and we had like a major capital gain that we none of us planned for and we're all planners how do you like that? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so what what happens at this point? Like you're you're oh yeah, so in, so like you're right. in. I'm in. You've right. got so a, now you've what? got a two year non compete. Like right. so, two years from the original deal. So like the deal nope. gets done in mid 2019. Nope, nope. Everybody kept saying that to me. They're like, you can make it two years. No, it's two years from when you quit. So it never gets better. <laughs> It, no, because everybody kept saying that to me. You can make it two years. Meanwhile, you know, we know what's coming around the corner in 2020, the pandemic. Right. So, you know, I actually could have made it two years because of the pandemic, but it wasn't two years. It was two years from when you quit. So every time I told everybody that, they were like, oh, oh, oh. But yeah, so I hired, I, I think I went through three attorneys. Um, 
And I just kept trying to find any attorney that would tell me anything that I wanted to hear. And um, most of them told me, you know, all these terrible reasons why I'm stuck and, you know, I'm a slave and I can't go anywhere and I can't do anything. And I'm like, I don't understand this. Other people are quitting. Other people are getting fired. I'm like, can I get fired? No, you can't get fired. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to, you know, ruin your reputation. They're going to put something on your U4. Meanwhile, by the way, everybody they fired, they didn't put anything on their U4s. So that was all, that was all just threats. Um, but anyway, I, so I, so I hired an attorney and the one attorney said, the only thing you can do is buy your business back is to negotiate, to buy your business back. It's a negotiated leave out of this contract. And, and I was like, I cannot believe I, I have to write there was a provision in there that said negotiated leave. No, there was no provision in there. No, there was nothing in there that said that. But because, you know, it happened and we didn't, there was, that was the only way. The only way is to give your money, give the money back, give money back, give money back and leave and start over and do it, you know, do well, take your ball and go home. Yeah. So, so in essence, the extent that they can say, well, this non-compete is, is reasonable because you sold your practice to us. You say like, great. How about I take my practice back and give you the money back, which essentially means I'm, yes. I'm buying my practice back, and yes. then we're square, and like then we can part ways because you're not losing clients. You got your money back. I'm not losing money. I, I got my clients back, and like right, it's basically a version of an undo, I guess, at that point. Exactly, exactly. It's like a Roth recharacterization when we used to be able yeah. to do those, right? Yep. So, so anyway, I that was, and for a while, I was like, I don't want to give them a penny. And I went through a whole, you know, six months of, you know, I don't want to give them any money. I, I, you know, they're ruining my life. They're ruining my career. You know, I'm, I, I can't get out of bed in the morning. I'm so depressed. I have to go see a therapist. Like, I mean, that's why I was like, I cannot believe it's like giving you an abuser money. So I'm like, I can't believe I have to do this. But I finally came to the conclusion, if this is the only way out, I'll take it. And so I had an attorney who had negotiated about a dozen guys out before me and one guy after me. And in the middle of this, they, I got them to agree to my terms and, um, and my buyback number. And, you know, I already started telling my clients, you know, I'm buying my business back, you know, so the good, good news is we're going to be leaving and, you know, I'm going to be, uh, I'm not going to be losing the the performance and the financial planning and I'm going to take everything with me. And that's where I was. And I was, you know, willing to write the check for it. So <laughs> this was like, I think it was agreed upon like uh, end of October of 2021. And, tw- and I'm waiting for the contract, waiting for the contract, waiting for the contract by February of 2022, they renege on me. And we've decided we don't want to allow you to buy this back after all. They said, Goldman has lost the taste for these deals. (laughs) Okay. And I'm like, what is happening right now? And I'm literally, I'm like, I'm totally in shock. And then they're like, are you staying? And I'm like, uh, maybe because, you know, I don't want them to know what I'm doing with my life. Uh, you know, right, I'm certainly right, right. I'm certainly not going to stay, but whatever. And so that's the point where I said, you, you're going to find this funny. I, I actually said to, I call him my handler. I said, you know, 
So what does it take to be successful at Goldman? Because I'm just, you know, incredibly unsuccessful. Like, how did I go from being the number four advisor in the country to being like an ant on the bottom of my shoe? Like, how did that happen? And actually, Matt Brinker said to me at one point, he said, Carrie, it's the environment. It's like you can't breathe on Mars. You can't breathe there. It's the same thing. It's the environment. But anyway, I thought it's that was a, funny. It's a culture thing. If you're, you yeah. know, if you're good at being a company person, Goldman is very rewarding for people who are good at being company people. That's part of the Goldman thing. But Or being in a box. But, being uh, in a box. Uh, but anyway, so you want to hear what he said? This is my yeah. favorite part. So I said, so what does it take to be successful at Goldman? And he said, don't be a hero to your clients. And I said, oh, no. And I thought to myself, no wonder. I am already a hero to my clients. No wonder I don't fit at Goldman. Too late. I already am. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when I resigned, I wanted to say, I wanted to put that in the, in the resignation letter, but my attorney advised against it. <laughs> so I didn't, but I really wanted to say that. And so I'll, uh, like, it, it just, it fascinates me because look, I mean, at the end of the day, like Goldman is a, a ludicrously financially successful business. Like there's, there's obviously something they're doing right and some people who are very successful in that in that environment but obviously like totally horrific for uh for you like it it's just this like extreme mismatch in culture and environment the only thing that that sort of throws me is like you know goldman knows what goldman is uh like they bought United Capital. Like this was a right. firm that was bred in independence. Uh, right. It's just a little bit like, did no one really see, see this coming? Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I honestly, I don't, I think that they thought that they were going to take us and put us in their little box. And you know what? For some people, honestly, Michael, between me and you, for an average or below average advisor, it's fantastic. Now they're getting clients. They have the Goldman name. You know, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to them. People are picking up their phone calls if they're soliciting people. You know, yep, it's people, people like affluent folks respond to the Goldman name. They've got like the right, right. I guess I it mean, was the ACO branch now merged in, but like they've right. got all the, all the planning into large companies and executives and upper right. managers that just they generate business they generate a ton of business that you get to serve and get paid very well to serve exactly so i mean for for some people it is nirvana and yeah. they don't care that they're being told what to do or how to do it or when to do it or what to say well they'll be told I, things that work in the goldman environment and you get rewarded for it like it's right. nice to it's nice if they give you the script to to be successful and then you do the script and it's successful but Again, that right. that only works if you actually like that environment in the first place. And and I I think what's interesting, like if you think about somebody who is you know an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. um, entrepreneurs don't really fit in boxes and don't really like being told what to do and how to do it. You know, it's just it's it's a definite definite cultural mismatch. So, so here they said, I can't buy my business back. I'm the only one that can't. Like I said, a dozen guys before me, one guy after me. Um, and I'm the only one they said no to. And, and I called them out on the fact that there was one guy after me. 
And then they went into this whole thing about how he started negotiating before me. And I know for a fact he didn't. And so, and I called them out on it. And I said, look, I know I'm the only one you said no to. And I'm the only woman. And, you know, that's, so I know that they know that they know that I know that whatever happened, happened. And so I knew that they weren't going to come after me. But at that point, they then switched the contract to lower everybody's payout and they put a six-month non-compete clause in there. And I was like, I can do six months. I think I can do this. I can live with this. And so instead of paying them to leave, I quit, ran out my non-compete, had my number two quit with me, and he could he could work after a month and then take the clients and watch them while I was not working for six months. Oh, be- because since he was in a lower tier in the team hierarchy, his non-compete provisions were shorter. Yes. Okay. So interesting. And so the the change in contract just was them unilaterally on their own. Just They were doing a comp change. They were re-upping their non-competes right. associated with their comp change, except that actually proved to be a very helpful override in your context. For me, it was. And it was funny because everyone's like, oh, well, you so lucky you got a new contract. I'm like, everybody got a new contract. It, it was not, not specific to me. It was because they were, they were lowering the comp and they had to come more in line with everybody else had a six-month non-compete and we had a two-year. So, And so after all that where they wouldn't let you buy it back, it turns out that you get a six-month window and so you took it. I took it as soon as I possibly could. Now, unfortunately, on the other side, it was it was a little bit more complicated because I had had a lot of offers on the table, um, and my offers were were based on not being sued by Goldman and a very very clean transaction with zero risk. And now I'm on the other side, and now I have a hundred percent risk, and I have an attorney telling everybody that I'm going to get a TRO. And Goldman's 100% making an example out of me because I'm the only one they said no to that they couldn't buy their business back. So they're going to go after me. And so it was a disaster on the other side. So ironically, like for anybody that wanted to take you in, at least having a clean break with a buyback, like puts a tidy bow on it. If you're air quotes, just quitting, running a non-compete and then going back to talk to your clients nobody really knows whether or how much the firm's going to challenge you or not, which just makes you quote unquote risky for anybody who might think about hiring you. Incredibly risky, incredibly, incredibly risky. Almost all my deals fell apart at the end when this happened, because I, I am now, I am now a major risk with, you know, a Goldman target on my back with, you know, an attorney saying that I'm getting a TRO and, you know, I was saying, which guess what? I was right. I was saying Goldman's not going to touch me with a 10 foot pole because they know that I know that they discriminated against me. And if they want me talking, I'm happy to talk and tell my, and tell my story. And this is my experience. So, you know, nobody could take away my experience from me because I'm not telling any tales out of school. This is what happened to me. So it's my story and I own it and I'm allowed to talk about it. Um, and so I never even got a cease and desist letter when we moved the first client. So I was right. They did not touch me with a 10-foot pole. They let me walk away. Because just at the, at the end of the day, litigation back and forth for them 
is on on the risk of discrimination issues is easier for them to just let let you get whatever clients you're going to get. Yes, and and I was part of the class action lawsuit for women that they had. I was part of that. Um, and unfortunately, I found out, which by the way, was settled and each woman got $50,000. Um, and I found out recently that United Capital employees was specifically excluded from the case. And so I, I'm getting zero, which I was going to donate the money anyway. But the principle of it doesn't feel good. Yes. No, it was the principle. So, I wanted it to be part of my story that I was part of the discrimination lawsuit, which I was. I just didn't get a payment. Yeah. So where ultimately did you land? Like, where did you go? Where are you now? So now I'm at Advisor Capital Management, which is a firm based out of New Jersey. Um, has about it has a um, a wealth side, which serves about 1,700 families. And then it also has a wholesale side, which manages money for other advisors. And um, yeah, that's where I am. They're pretty much the only one left standing who would take me. <laughs> I was going to say how much of this was like you you sought them out because you liked their offering versus like they had a reasonable offering and just they were willing to work with you through this challenging period. Well, I, I, you know, the whole thing was very interesting because, you know, they, their attorney was my old attorney, which made it a little bit complicated and yeah, it was, it was complicated, but they wanted me and they, they did come after me and they recruited me hard for at least two years. Um, you know, and in the end they were, they were, they were left standing and, you know, it was just the whole the whole experience was horrible. I mean, I think I at one point had fifteen offers on the table, and then in the end, I I had advisor capital management, which I'm happy to be at. You know, I mean, I'm happy that I'm there. And they also wanted to support my me being head of women in wealth, and they truly believe in my vision of you know changing the industry to make it more female friendly. And they're letting me, you know, do all the great things that I used to do before. And I've got, you know, a lot of freedom and a lot of autonomy. And I really, really love that. I really, really do. It's, it's really fantastic. And, you know, and I'm getting to build from scratch there. So, so did clients ultimately follow you through this whole yes. journey? Like how much of the yes. practice ultimately came after you you got to wait six. You got to wait out six months, and then I'm yes. presuming like you got to reinitiate contact with people because you yes. can't yes. take client yes. information you're not supposed yes. to take. Yes, yes. So we did really fantastic. So I took 99 percent of my clients, and my number two took about 40. So we wound up averaging 90 percent. Okay. I think that's pretty good considering yeah. what happened, you know, what they were doing on the other side, you know, they, they were not playing fair on the other side. So, um, and, and, and I mean, I'm struck for all of this, like, as you said, cl getting clients has not been the, not been the challenge for you historically. So I'm, I'm presuming like to the extent that some didn't come along, like you're fine to go get more exactly totally totally fine i think we'll probably be at max capacity again within two months <laughs> and so i guess that that so that was really part of the driver for you around the the time window of the the non-competes like 
it wasn't necessarily about the ability to take clients per se, although obviously it's nice when you can bring them with you. The challenge for you is like you couldn't bring them and you couldn't even go get new ones, even though you're good at it, because it was going to require you to sit on the sidelines for two years. Right. I mean, I don't know how many people could actually do that. I mean, that's a that's a business killer. I, I was going to ask what you did for six months. Like, <laughs> to sit well, out. you know, the fun, the funny thing is I actually it, it went really fast. And I think I went to Europe three times. Um, but I, I honestly, I did speak with clients. I was allowed to talk to clients as a friend. So mm-hmm. I talked to a lot. I probably, I definitely talked to all of my clients multiple times during that time frame. I just wasn't allowed to talk about like their investments or their, you know, stuff because I didn't have access to any of that. But, you know, the market was down. I was talking them off the ledge. You know, that's the whole, you know, where we were down the whole entire year. And, you know, people started to get frustrated with the all the down, every single month down. So so what comes next for you at this point? So I am in the middle. I, I just finished my second book and I'm very excited about it. Um, I don't know when it's coming out, um, if it's which publishing route it's going to go through. So I'm very excited about that right now. Um, What's the the focus of the book? um, So I think the name is going to be um, Purses to Portfolios, a Guide to Female Wealth. So similar to my first book, but different, Um, you know, a lot more deeper stuff. And, you know, I talk about making the industry female friendly, why women leave their advisors. I talk about my experience with Goldman Sachs. I talk about, you know, understanding why women's relationship with money is unique and challenging financial fear and gender inequality and the wealth gap and talk about financial planning for women and mentorship and understanding the emotional side of money and all that stuff. So is this for advisors about how to how to work with female wealth or ultimately like no, to end consumers it's, or just it's, sort of your like personal manifesto on all of it? I think it's both. It's funny. I think I think it's both. I really do. I mean, that's what people keep saying. Is this for advisors or is this for clients? And I'm like, I think it's for both. I really do. I mean, my first book was really for, for both too. Although um, uh, Think Advisor had said on my first book that every male advisor should read it so you can get inside a woman's head. Hmm. But it was really for women to understand money. So what surprised you the most about this path of building an advisory business? Oh, I would say, again, I, I think I, I'm repeating myself, but I think how hard it was in the beginning to carve a niche, uh, get clients, and figure out, you know, everything that you need to know. Because, I mean, you need to know so much information, as you know, because you are the, the, you are the creator of all the knowledge. So you know all the knowledge that we have to know. So, I mean, it's a massive, it's such a massive amount. And I remember also in the beginning, in my early stages, I was like, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't know everything. How can I, how can I charge somebody when I don't have all the answers, you know? So, you know, back, I think in in the early stages, I think that was really, really hard because I felt like I had to have all the knowledge before I could charge for the knowledge, you know, and I had to know everything. And, you know, now, 
here I am much later in my career and I know what I need to know at this, at this, at this point in my life. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm going to continue on the path that I'm on. And I don't, I, I don't get into the details, you know, the devil's in the details, but that's not me. Somebody, you know, somebody who works for me is yeah. in the details. You know, I'm totally high level, high picture, um, you know, just wanting to educate, you know, the world on the importance of financial planning and financial literacy and all of all well, the great stuff that we know. I was going to ask what, what changed that just you have such a confidence around business development now, but as you articulated, like a, a really tough time for many years early on, like what, what changed so much from how, how comfortable you are to get clients now to how rough it was for you for that first four or five years? I don't know if it was me or my knowledge level or my confidence or honestly, I, I don't even know what the pivot was, but I feel like as soon as I hit my stride, it was like, I'm off to the races, but it took me a long time to get to that point. And also I feel like in the beginning, when I first started, I was like, not even sure that I wanted to be an advisor. So I was like, I feel like I was maybe 50% committed and I was like one foot in, one foot out. So I wasn't really, I was like, I'm just waiting to get a job, like, you know, waiting for the recession to be over and then I'll get a a big fat job again. And, and then I was like, wait a minute, I, I don't think I'm supposed to be getting a job. I think I'm supposed to be doing this. And then once I realized I was good at it and that was it. And I remember also back early in the, in my early years, I started to teach the CFP Um, and I taught the CFP like from 2004 to 2008, like until the financial crisis. And then I stopped teaching it, but like that also helped me know that I know everything. I know enough to teach it to everybody else. So I feel like I'm good enough. Interesting. If I can, if I can teach it to other advisors, then I've got the confidence to be able to say it to clients. Right. So, so what do you know now that you wish you could like go back and tell you about just these dynamics of like what to do when the firm you sell to gets sold. Like, are there things you would have done differently or no different? So I, I, you know, it's so funny because I, I go through this a lot and a lot of people ask me this question and, you know, first of all, I never thought that United Capital would be sold. You know, it was never on the table for us to be sold to, you know, a big Wall Street firm because we were anti-Wall Street. So that we, when we came into the firm, we were told and sold that we're either going to go public or we're going to stay private and, you know, pay dividends and we're going to grow this firm and change the world. And, you know, I think most of us really, really bought that. And I certainly did. And I really believe that nothing was going to change. And, and I never in my wildest dreams imagined being sold to Goldman Sachs. Never, ever, ever. And yeah, I mean, just the whole, right. I remember back to industry in the early United Capital days, like it was a fairly direct, like anti Wall Street kind of brand. So just that's a, to be sold to Goldman at the end of that is like a, particularly jarring version of of how that story plays out. Yes. Yes, it is never what anybody imagined. I would I would I would think. Um 
but you know, and 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 there's no way. Like I, if people keep saying like, would you have done it differently if you knew what you knew now? And I'm like, I don't know because you know I loved United Capital. I just didn't love what happened when it was sold. So you know, would I have done anything different? I don't. I don't know. You know, I feel like being on your own is fantastic. Fantastic, like fantastic, 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 because you can make all the decisions and you, but then you don't have leverage because then you have to do everything yourself. So I don't know if there is anything perfect. And believe me, I've been looking and I've looked my entire career and I feel like you have to create your perfect. And sometimes your perfect turns out to be a little less perfect. So then you (laughs) have to just rebuild. Sometimes if you build your perfect, you have to rebuild your perfect. Right. Right. And I mean, I always, I always feel like you should do what you're great at and do what makes you happy. And I'm doing that now. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting my mojo back. Everyone's like, you're back, you're back, you're back. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not, not back yet, but I'm slowly coming back. I really, I really feel like I'm coming back to where I was before, but it's, it, you know, it's taken me a while because I'm dealing a little bit with post-traumatic stress disorder. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors, I guess, particularly like young, young women trying to come in the business today to, to be successful? So um, I want them to have um, – believe in themselves and that they can do this and that they can absolutely do this. And um, I'm going to work on making it more female-friendly and shifting it so that it's, it's less – Uncom- it's less uncomfortable for them. And I'm also creating a mentorship program for them as well so that they have women like myself and uh, my colleagues, my my group of my fantastic women who are doing this with me. Um, and we're going to get together and, and try to support all these women who are coming in because we want to be there for them. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that always comes up is the word success itself means very different things to different people. So I feel like you've you've had like sort of multiple success journeys, like built the firm, sold to United Capital, pick up, building building again after a after a brief four year hiatus. So you know like you 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 seem to find these paths to success for the for the business and career. How, how do you define success for yourself at this point? For me, uh success is um, freedom and freedom to do what I want to do and what makes me happy and what I'm good at. And that is the most important thing to me is that I can, you know, I can go on TV and I can speak and I can write and I can, I can influence and I can make a difference in this world and I can help women and I can help the industry and I can change the industry. And, and I'm doing all these great things that get me out of bed in the morning because that's my one thing. My one thing is to help women. And so if I can do that in every shape, way, and form, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in this world. Very cool. Well, hopefully we help to give a little bit more of a platform here to bring that message from you to more of the advisor community. I hope so. Thank you, Carrie, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, 
at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.